So Ephesians chapter 1, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 976. 976 in your pew Bible. I'll show you where we've been and then where we're going to go. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to start with verse 3, where we've been. And I think we've been up through verse, uh, I'm not sure where we've been up to, through verse, looks like uh, probably 7 at any rate. So 3 to 7, it looks like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has favored us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. It's a celebration of blessing, a celebration of praise. What we've highlighted in the weeks up until this point, we've highlighted this idea of the Father's blessing, uh, the Father's choosing, the Father's predestinating us for adoption. We talked about the word predestinate, the yellow words we've spent particular time on, adoption. And then in Him we have redemption. We spent time last week on the word Redemption, And all this is only possible because of Christ. God, God the Father hasn't made all these wonderful plans, and all we have to do is this one thing. No, it all depends on Christ, the success of Christ. Christ is the reason why the Father's plans are brought to fulfillment, because he perfectly satisfied all of the Father's plans. He saw them through. He completed them. So it's all done in Christ, which are the pink words, and all of this is to the praise of his glorious grace. This is all a work of grace, a beautiful, splendid work of grace. Now, building upon that, we have verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Two simple questions, and then we'll build upon that. The simple questions are, who is the he, and what did he lavish? We're starting out, this is all, I mean, our Bible has it broken up, and I've told you this probably every week. Verses 3 to 14 are one sentence the way Paul wrote them. So it's a very complex sentence, and it's sometimes easy to get lost in the pronouns or the moving pieces as to who's doing what. So he lavished upon us. Who's the he and what did he lavish? The he goes all the way back to God the Father in verse 3. God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us. And then we've got all these components of the blessing. The choosing, the predestinating, uh, the adoption. Uh, the In Christ we've been redeemed, the forgiveness of our sins. And now he's lavished upon us. The lavishing upon us refers back to what we just read in verse 7, the riches of his grace. He's lavished his grace upon us. He hasn't just doled it out. Remember, it's according to his grace. Not just out of his grace, because even a drop would be out of his grace, but it's according to how much grace God has and is commensurate with that. That's a lot of grace, which is why the sentence is so long, which is why there's all these 
very theological words that have so much meaning and so much depth. And that's why D. Martin Lloyd-Jones spent so many years teaching through Ephesians. Because he understood something of the complexity, something of the beauty of all God has done in his grace. I've got a new definition of grace. Many of you are familiar with the idea of grace kind of being an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. Uh, a new, another definition was provided by the Life Application Bible Commentary. I liked what they said. Grace is God doing for us that which we do not deserve and could not do for ourselves. That's grace. We don't deserve it, and we couldn't do it. And God did it in Christ. That's grace. God doing for us what we do not deserve and could not do for ourselves. So he lavished this grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. This is a little bit more difficult question. Uh, is the reference to God's, to the wisdom and insight in reference to God's wisdom and insight, or is it in reference to him giving us wisdom and insight? We just sang a song, The Perfect Wisdom of Our God. And certainly God's wisdom is all over this work of grace which goes back from eternity past, working through all the tapestry of history, even to the fullness of times. So certainly God has that wisdom and understanding as he, as he designs and carries out his own good will. But I will tell you that it's almost unanimous in all the sources I checked, the wisdom and insight here is in reference to us, not God. And it doesn't mean God's wisdom and insight wasn't in the planning, but here, part of his lavishing upon us things is he lavishes upon us wisdom and insight. That's part of his gracious act. So if I put it all together, and I'm just going to concentrate on the main points so you kind of get the big picture before we break down verses 8, 9, and 10, if you kind of piece the main thoughts, it looks something like this. Not only has God chosen us in Christ, not only has God predestined us for adoption, not only has he redeemed us through Christ's blood, all of that is true, but it's like, but wait, there's more. Not only has he done all that, but God also has made known to us the mystery of his grace in all wisdom and insight. Uh, one Bible translation says, along with, all wisdom and insight. That's part of what he's lavished upon those that are in Christ. He's lavished us with wisdom and insight. I wrote the mystery of his grace. The way the Bible actually reads is making known to us the mystery of his will. But this will is all about his grace. That's the center point of the will. It's not the, his will in judgment. It's not his will in just sheer power and ability to accomplish all of his purposes, but it's his will and grace, in grace. So he's made known to believers the mystery of his grace, the mystery of his will. So let's talk about the word mystery. The word mystery in our culture generally has to do with the idea of things you don't understand. It's a mystery. Um, you read a mystery and you see all these clues, which you may not even recognize them as clues, 
but it's a mystery and that things are happening that you're not appreciating or understanding, and then maybe at the end of the book, all of a sudden, you get it. But that's not how the word mystery is used in the Bible. In our culture, mystery means you don't know. In the Bible, when it talks about mystery, it's here's something you didn't know, but now you do. So mystery in Scripture has to do with what we know, not what we don't know. If you're skeptical, I've got two passages of Scripture where this is very clear. The first is Romans. Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. In the Bible of mysteries, you couldn't have known this ahead of time. But now God has disclosed it. God has revealed it. The mystery is, is for, for believers in particular to see and understand. The second passage is just a, a couple books over from where we're at. This is in Colossians. and I'm going to use Berkeley's translation from 1945. Not because Berkeley is somehow doing some sleight of hand and I couldn't make the same point from any Bible that we have represented here, but only because this is another case where it's in the middle of a sentence and Berkeley kind of divides it up neatly so that I don't have to keep going back one more verse so that you're not, I'm not quoting in the middle of a sentence. Berkeley does a nice job of making it succinct. So Berkeley renders it this way. Paul says, I've become a minister of the church by divine appointment that was given me to preach fully to you the word of God, the mystery, which he uses the word secret, but it's the same word mystery, to preach fully to you the word of God, the mystery that was hidden from ages and generations, but which now has been revealed to his saints, to whom God has chosen to make known what is the wealth of this glorious mystery among the Gentiles. And then here's the mystery in Colossians, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There was no Gentile that could have possibly ever imagined that. He wasn't picking up clues that one day this was going to happen. It was something that was suddenly, graciously, powerfully revealed by God to Gentiles. Christ in you, the hope of glory, your only hope of eternal life. Back to Ephesians chapter 1. There are any number of mysteries revealed in the New, in the New Testament. What is the mystery that has been revealed in Ephesians chapter 1? What is it that previously was not known, but now is known in Ephesians chapter 1? And the answer is, it's his will. It's a plan. It's for the fullness of times. And the real mystery is that all things will be united in him, in Christ. All things will be united in Christ. That's the mystery. That's what now is known that wasn't understood, wasn't appreciated, wasn't really known prior to this being revealed by God through the apostles, in particular the Apostle Paul. Now it's been known. Let me show you this. In former times, God has made many claims and many promises, most of which were not understand, understood. Uh, 
the Proto-Evangelium. The first evangelistic gospel was told to Adam and Eve after their sin, where the Lord told Adam and Eve that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head and, and the woman's seed would be bruised by the serpent. They had no idea what that meant. But the little bit that they understood, I think they thought everything was going to be made better as soon as Eve had her first child. They thought the solution was right then and it would go back to the way things were before sin. But it didn't happen like that. Noah might have thought after the God flooded the world, uh, all the world, and that there were only eight souls saved on an ark, that that was the solution to the problem, but he would have been wrong. And, and Noah himself demonstrated that when he uh, got drunk in his tent uh, after he came out of the ark. And there were still problems after they came out of the ark, and civilization reproduced all of the evil that was there before the flood. One of the most important promises in Scripture is a promise given to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. It reads like this. The Lord tells Abram and Sarah, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, in, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a pretty high promise. And eventually, Abraham and Sarah had their promised child, Isaac. And they never stopped living in a tent. And they really didn't own anything other than a burial plot, which Abram bought for his wife, Sarah, when she passed away. And then there was Isaac, who lived in tents. And there was Jacob, who described his life after so many years as, My life has been full of trouble. And all of the nations of the earth weren't being blessed through Jacob. And Jacob went down with his, his 70 family members down into Egypt where they eventually became slaves before God raised up Moses. But the solution wasn't in Moses and it wasn't in Joshua and it wasn't in entering the promised land and it wasn't in receiving the, the law. God kept making all of these wonderful promises which really go back to this Genesis 12 promise I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. I'm going to bless all those who bless you. And all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed because of what I do for you. And they kept wondering, what does this look like? When's it going to happen? And they didn't know. It was a mystery. A mystery in our way of understanding a mystery. But now to the Ephesians, it's not a mystery. It's a revealed mystery. It's something now they know that Abraham didn't know, and Isaac and Jacob didn't know, Moses didn't know, the prophets didn't know it. You've got that passage in, in uh, 1 Peter. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophets wrote about this stuff. Isaiah wrote chapter 53 about the suffering servant, but he didn't understand what all it meant as Abraham didn't understand what was revealed to him. 
Even the angels, from their vantage point, did not understand how God was going to fulfill all these wonderful promises. But to us it has been revealed in wisdom and understanding. God has revealed his plan to us that all those prior generations did not know. They were only guessing and living by faith in the unknown of what God said he would do. It's revealed to us. So how are we to understand this plan that in the, for the fullness of times he will unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth? The word plan is a word that means uh, management, administration, stewardship. And in uh, the old King James it talks about the word, it uses the word dispensation. Uh, I think management, stewardship, administration, God is administering his will. He's stewarding his will. He's managing things as he works the full counsel of his will through time in history. What this means is that it's the polar opposite of what I read in Ecclesiastes, which is, um, in some sense, is my favorite book of the Bible. In another sense, it really couldn't be. The gospel's pretty obscure in Ecclesiastes in a lot of ways, but it's a fascinating book. I love to teach it. In Ecclesiastes, you've got that first chapter where it's like vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's meaningless. It's pointless. God is administering his will. It's not meaningless. It's not pointless. When I throw up my hands and say, well, that was a waste of time, I'm living like Ecclesiastes has the final word. When I throw up my hands and say, well, what was the point of that? That, that was a waste of time. Uh, that was to no good end. None of those things are to no good end in God's economy. He is managing and stewarding his will. And it's on that basis that Christians are given the promise in Romans 8.28. He works all things for the good of those that love him who are the called according to his purpose. All things for good. All things for good. There's no wasted moments in God's economy. There's nothing that God is not using in my, my life as part of the tapestry of his grace, which we sang in the perfect wisdom of our God. I don't, I don't live in Ecclesiastes. I sometimes do practically. But by faith, that's not where I'm to park. That's not where I'm to live. God has purpose in all that he's doing in the church and in the Christian so it's the opposite view, this idea that God is managing and administering his will. History is moving toward a glorious goal, and it is right on track. It is right on track. God doesn't delay his purposes for man, woman, child, nation, or king. It is right on track, as it has always been right on track. And it will find its final fulfillment in all things being united in Christ. That's the plan. That's the administration of God. It talks about for the fullness of time, which is a word that means completion or accomplishment. The word is used dozens of times in the Bible. You'll read in the Gospels over and over where Jesus did this uh, to fulfill Scripture. He's fulfilling Scripture as he starts his ministry. Actually, his birth was a fulfillment of Scripture. As he's on the cross dying, it's a fulfillment of Scripture. That's the same word that's translated fullness here. All that Christ is doing as he lives his life is in fulfillment of the Father's plan. And as it has been fulfilled up to this point, it will continue to be fulfilled until it's all accomplished. Because God fulfills his will perfectly. 
In Galatians chapter 4 is a really good example of this. It says, Paul says, in the fullness of time, Christ came. Does it actually talk about Mary's birth? I'm not sure. In the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When did Christ come? When was he born? In the fullness of time. According to the administration of God's will, at just the right time, just according to plan, that's when he came. And he fulfilled God's will in coming, in being born. It's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. That's out of the New King James Bible, because that word fully is not translated in most Bibles. Most Bibles just are going to have something along the lines of, when the day of Pentecost came, just like it came every year. But that's really not what Luke wrote in Acts chapter 2. What he, he used the word fully. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. Because the day of Pentecost, which was celebrated as a Jewish feast through the Old Testament, it had not fully come then because it was pointing to the day when the Father and the Son would pour out the Spirit upon the church. That's its fullness. That's why they celebrated the day of Pentecost all those centuries in the Old Testament to point to this one great pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost. So when it had fully come, right on track according to God's plan, this is what transpired in Acts chapter 2. Especially interesting is Romans chapter 11. These are verses we looked at when we were in Isaiah. I'm going to look at them very briefly uh, because I do think they play in in a very important way, but not I don't have time enough to break it down again. It looks like this. The word fullness. Romans chapter 11. This is from uh, the Christian Standard Bible. Paul says, I ask then, have they, referring to Israel, to the Jews, have they, Israel, stumbled so as to fall? The answer, absolutely not. On the contrary, by Israel's transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if Israel's transgression brings riches to the Gentiles, the world, and Israel's failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will Israel's fullness bring? God has a plan for Israel. It's not been fully accomplished yet, but he's got a plan. And it will be, full, it will be fully accomplished according to the Father's will. That's, that's Israel. If you go a little bit further, same chapter, Verses 25 to 27. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God's got a full plan for Israel. He's also got a full plan for the Gentiles. And both will fully be accomplished according to the Father's will. Both will fully be accomplished. That's in Romans chapter 11. Here, he's going to unite all things in him. That full plan for Israel and that full plan for Gentiles, it will all be united in Christ. It will all be brought into one entity. We're not going to go through uh, the, a new heaven and a new earth and be picking out Gentiles and Jews and, oh, what's God's plan for the Jew and what's God's plan for the Jew? It'll, all, it'll be fully united in him in the fullness of time. The word united means to sum up, to bring together. 
It's the sum of all the moving parts. All the things that may seem disconnected now. You've got Old Testament truths and prophecies and promises. You've got prophecies and promises regarding the church and the New Testament. And there's lots of moving parts. One day it'll all be summed up in the fullness of time in Christ. A good way to understand this is to think about musical instruments. You've got, before an orchestra, you've got all these, all these sounds that seem kind of dissonant. Uh, they don't make a lot of sense. It's not beautiful. You don't go to a symphony to hear this. But all those parts are summed up to make something beautiful, a tapestry of grace that we will better appreciate and understand in the fullness of time in Christ. And that works not only on the, the meta scale, this grand scale between nations and Jews and Gentiles. It's not only on that scale. It's all the way down to the individual scale of a believer. All those little Moments of life that bring tears and sorrow and disappointment. It's not what you prayed for. It will all be brought to a completion and summed up into a beautiful work of grace when it's all said and done. So that, that includes myself. In Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do. There's disharmony in my life as there's disharmony in your life. It'll all be summed up and brought to completion in Christ. It'll all be made a finished, beautiful thing in Christ, in my life individually. In family and society, you've got families that are broken, families that are fractured, families uh, that don't get along. You know, in some extent, you know, my ex my, the family I grew up in, we're not a hugely functional family. I, I suppose on one level, every family is dysfunctional. It's just that there's levels of dysfunction. Uh, my family seems like they got a pretty good share. But at any rate, uh, it'll all be summed up in Christ. It'll all be brought to a, a perfect completion in Christ. It includes nations, tribes, and ethnicities. It will all be summed up in Christ. The solution to the world's problem isn't Another ruler, a different style of government, a different economic system, a different distribution of wealth, a different person in the White House or in whatever form of government uh, you look to, that's not going to solve the world's problems. The solution will be in Christ. It will all be summed up in him. Not before and not after. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for things that are righteous. But we should know that it will, we will always fail until Christ comes back to sum it all up and make it all right. It won't be made right apart from him. Things in heaven and things on earth. In Revelation, you've got scenes of, of all the beings in heaven worshiping the Lamb, recognizing him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Things in heaven recognize Christ is all that. And then you've got things on earth. That includes male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, every tribe, nation, language and tongue, all people will recognize either in salvation or in judgment he's king of kings and lord of lords because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And those things on earth includes all of creation because all of creation is waiting for the day when the curse of sin is removed from the world 
And it will be. It will all be summed up in Christ. Someday, one day, in Christ. What are your comments and questions? So what Christians do is they live by faith in the promises of God, though we know how it all ends up because scriptures re reveal that to us. The mystery uh, has been disclosed in Christ. We have that to our advantage. But sometimes in your own life, it seems a little chaotic and it doesn't seem on track. Living by faith is God has given me a word of promise that this too is part of his tapestry of grace and all things are working together for good and I can trust him in my disappointment and I can trust him in my, my sorrow or my tears. And also in your triumphs. Sometimes, it, sometimes it's the triumphs that, that are the greatest temptation to keep us from walking in fellowship with Christ, with God. Any thoughts? Here, I cut you off last week. I didn't give chance for people to... And now, th now this week, like all the questions were from last week, maybe? Jonathan. Eastern religion, time is circular. You know, they believe in reincarnation and time is circular. What goes around comes around. It's just, it's the circle of life. But Christianity, the Bible has never taught circular history. It teaches linear history. In the beginning, the beginning of what? The beginning of time. The beginning of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And time moves linearly. And eventually, in the fullness of time, it'll all be wrapped up. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Yeah. It's a key difference between what the Bible teaches and Eastern religion. Anybody else? He was a kinsman redeemer, which is, a, a, it, it is based on that same good word redeemer. And he was in a place to, to buy back their freedom uh, yeah, yeah. Rick? And Job wasn't given answers, not the answers he wanted at all, but Job realized he didn't need answers. He was okay with not having answers. Now he would just trust God. He would recognize he was, he was trying to converse with God as if he himself were God, and he realized he's not in a position to do that. So he went back to, I will, I will trust in your character and your providence and your goodness, and blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But it's hard in the moment. I have no doubt <laughs> I would fail the test. Anyone else? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.